Hi everyone, we hope you're enjoying Season 5 of Elixir Wizards. Before we get into today's show, we want to make a quick announcement. We're currently looking for an engineering manager to join our team. If you have expertise in React, Elixir, or Ruby, a track record of improving engineering processes, and a proficiency in the design, maintenance, and assessment of technical architecture, we'd love for you to apply. Our team is fully remote in the United States, and first-time managers are encouraged to apply. Head over to smartlogic.io jobs to learn more and submit your application. Thanks, and now here's the show. All right, we are recording, so there we go. And that's actually the secret of the universe. So the funny thing about relativistic physics is if you had actually done that equation, we would have already had transluminal travel. So you guys were recording that, right? Welcome to Elixir Wizards, a <laughs> podcast brought to you by Smart Logic, a custom web and mobile development shop based in Baltimore. My name is Justice Epen, and I'll be your host. I am joined by my sensational co-host, Sunday Mint, and our enigmatic producer, Eric Ostrich. This season's theme is Adopting Elixir, and today we're joined by none other than the founder of Thunderbolt Labs, Randall Thomas. How are you, Randall? Another day in paradise, sir. Happy to be here. Do you like that segue from whatever you were just talking about to the intro of the show? Yeah, I, I really do. And I actually like that you didn't miss a single beat. Well, I was actually leaving something out because I wanted to ask where you're we have here where you're maybe from, but I'm curious where you're recording from, where you're calling in from. Oh, Miami, Florida. Miami. Nice. Home of, of Great Healthcare Central. Just want to know, you know, we're, great we're number one Central. or we were it, for a while, at least for COVID response. Ah, uh, okay. Very cool. Well, I am personally someone who loves Florida and the weather down there and the people down there. I go down all the time, actually, to Miami, Fort Lauderdale area. So oh, next sweet. time I'm down there, I'll come yeah, and say hello. Next time down, we can mask up and go out. Yeah, I can't. that sounds great, actually. And Sunday, Eric, how are you all doing? We are great. Well, I'm great. Eric, how are you? <laughs> doing great. <laughs> Rock and roll. Welcome to season five. This is our first normal interview of the season, and we're very, very excited to have a new season underway. We want to open up with some sort of basic personal background questions for you. Get to know you a little bit, Randall. Tell us how you got into programming initially. Were you formally trained? Did you teach yourself? It was an accident. So I was very lucky to attend. Basically, okay, everybody has those short buses that take the smart kids off to some program. They export the smart kids out of the school. So I was lucky enough to be in one of those programs and we actually had robotics. And our robotics program ran eight hours a day during the summer year long. So I basically, when I, by the time I was a junior, I basically spent literally all day in a robotics research laboratory. And then our robotics program actually started an hour and a half. I was so nerdy. I showed up to school an hour and a half early to get a double period of robotics in. So I literally had no intention of doing this. I just thought it was kind of cool. So we started playing around with stuff like C, robotic indefectors, embedded systems, all while I was in high school. And the accident for me was my mentor at the robotics program suggested that when I was looking for a, a day job, like for a summer job, when one time he's like, well, I know some people over at NASA, so why don't you go ask there? And I'm like, because it's NASA. And he's like, it pays 15 bucks an hour. And I'm like, I'm going. Okay. Which for a kid making 15 bucks an hour, it was the most amazing thing ever. I sat around in an air conditioned laboratory playing with stuff that I would have played with for free. Um, and they paid me money. And I'm like, Hey, this engineering thing. Wow. Kind of cool. Neat. By the way, this was at a time when hardware was really expensive. A computer was, was super expensive. I think my first 386 at 16 megahertz, I think it was $1,800 in like 1990s money it had just under a megabyte of RAM. So I was getting free hardware from the stuff that we burned out of the lab, like Sims, Dims, like, so this was like just everything. And then after that, I just fell into it. I literally, I kind of never left. I don't know. Growing up as a kid, I think I wanted to be a lawyer. I don't think I ever said, oh, I'm going to be an engineer. But so that's where I started. And then I went on to study electrical and computer engineering in college. So what was your first job in programming? My first paid job in programming was actually that gig at NASA. And I was kind of lucky because we had already had, we already have computers around the house. My dad was an electrical engineer, so he was a computer hobbyist. So we had an Atari 800, 64K back when you had to type in all the programs in basic by yourself. So you'd spend like a week typing in basic commands and then you'd save it to a cassette tape. 
that's not bullshit that you actually would save data to an audio cassette tape. You're looking at me like like I'm making this up, but this no, is no. I I believe you. It's just hard to imagine. To fathom, yes. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I grew up in the '90s, so yeah. <laughs> but we actually, uh, I actually have a similar. Like my dad's also an electrical engineer, and he built my first computer. And I only like recently thought about like that era, like early '90s, mm-hmm. and being like, "Wait, how was it that we had a computer? Like that wasn't normal. My friends didn't have computers." And he was like, "Oh, I just built one. I built you one." And I was like, "Oh, okay. I guess that was normal thing for you, but none of my friends had that." <laughs> you know, it's really funny. I actually think that I was really fortunate to get into computing when I did, because in the '90s, you had no choice. You literally like. I'm telling you, the drivers were to get Wing Commander running on your 386. And you actually had to go in and set like memory maps and high memsys and EMM 386sys. If anybody's old enough to remember it, you literally had to tell it where in memory to put things like your Sound Blaster card and which interrupt request on the hardware that your Sound Blaster card would actually otherwise talk on. So there were no abstractions. You had to actually know how a computer worked to get it to work in the first place. So between that and actually noticing that you could make some money writing code, that's like kind of got sucked in. I mean, do you think that that has helped you a lot in your career, especially now when you're so much further away from the metal, so to speak? Yes, it absolutely has. Because have you heard that joke? It's turtles all the way down. Oh yeah, the, the I think we had a whole story. interview on that last season. Did you really? Oh man, I Mickey Rosenis loves to refer to that. Which I is that originally from? So it's really funny. It might very well be. And I don't know if that's truly, it's an apocryphal story or if it's true. Apparently, wasn't it Stephen Hawking, that very clever young man, but it's turtles all the way down. He was trying to describe the nature of the universe or some particular thing, which was bound by physics. I think that was the story. You know what? I want to say we looked this up and discovered it's actually like an ancient, maybe Buddhist saying. Mm. Where's my Jamie to maybe look that up? No, I'm just kidding. That's a reference to my producer, Eric. But no, it's like the abstraction does matter. So what it's done is it always gives me an appreciation for that all resources are finite. Mm. I started off, my first machines were like the stuff, first stuff I was programming on. We literally had 32K of RAM and 32K of ROM. And that was for text, code, data, everything. Like we had hand optimized assembler on 8051s. The compilers couldn't be trusted to optimize it away. So we would literally go and look at the assembler that was produced, read it, and do things like, no, we know that this clock cycle is actually two clock cycles, so we can remove this no-op here and move the assembler one line up. Because literally, it was we could tell and count the number of cycles for instructions for registers. Wow. I'm getting knowledge envy right now. So indeed, Eric is a terrific producer, and the Turtles All the Way Down quote has been incorrectly attributed to folks as far back as William James and Bertrand Russell, but the earliest allusions in print to this mythological story could be found in the 17th and 18th centuries as far back as 18... Well, hmm. Well, okay. So first publication of Turtles All the Way Down is attributed to Joseph Berg in 1854. So yeah, this definitely goes (laughs) a long way back. It's a philosophical notion just as much as a... I mean, recursion is a philosophical concept as much as we think of it as a conspirator. What is that? A computer-specific thing. I thought you were trying to say conspiracy theory. <laughs> so did no. I, actually. I'm like, recursion, recursion is, is a conspiracy, conspiracy. theory. <laughs> oh, that's so out. Uh, it actually, uh, you know, recursion could be a conspiracy theory because it has many of the properties. It's self-referential, right? Mm-hmm. It can't be optimized away. Mm-hmm. And it's very easy to blow the stack if you're not sure what you're doing. I think we might have just landed on something here. We can just... Yeah. We can call it a day. This has been a great interview. Thanks. <laughs> <laughs> now, leapfrog forward in time a little bit, just like a good mm-hmm. conspiracy theory. There should be a lot of time travel. Where did you first learn about Elixir and how did you get into the Elixir community? So there are two parts about Elixir. And one was, if you remember, maybe in the, I don't know, maybe 2008, 2009, maybe there was this thing called Ruby Motion. And everybody was really excited in the Ruby community about being able to build iOS apps using Ruby because Objective-C, if you've ever written it, Objective-C looks so bizarre to your standard Ruby programmer that they kind of say no to Objective-C based on principle of where they put the square brackets. So I want to say, I think it was at Baruco, Barcelona Ruby Conference, we were actually giving a talk on Ruby Motion. And I remember having 
a conversation with Jose and he's like, no, 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 I'm going to get Rubius like working on this language Elixir. Or, I'm not even sure if he called it Elixir then, but like I have this idea that we could get it running on the Erlang ecosystem and having tried to learn Erlang and failed miserably. I think like everybody does their first time. Like I bought the Prague prod book and thought that I was going to go write me some Erlang and it did not happen. Why is there a modulus operator opening this entire thing? I don't understand. Like where are these curly braces everywhere? And why are there arrows just randomly inserted in places? It, I literally, I was like, I abandoned that entire attempt. And what I remember thinking to myself is there's no way you're going to ever going to be able to get Rubius to go into the Erlang ecosystem. Mm-hmm. So flash forward a couple of years and a lot of smart Rubyists, I was talking to them and I'm like, I haven't seen you for a while. What have you been doing? It's like, oh, I've been doing this Elixir thing. Elixir. Okay. What are you been doing? Oh, we don't build Rails apps anymore. We build, we're building this thing on this thing called Phoenix. And so all these people who are way smarter than me started talking about Elixir and Erlang. And I looked into it and I'm like, wow, there's a lot here. And I kind of fell down the hole. I did Dave Thomas's book in a weekend and I'm like, this is amazing. This is really good. That was kind of it. And so that was, would have been about 2018, I think. 2017, 2018. Yeah. Do you remember your first Elixir comp? Yeah, 2019. I was actually, I was really lucky in that at the behest of a couple of different people saying, hey, you should submit a talk to ElixirConf. I was actually, I got a talk accepted to ElixirConf about how much of a struggle it was for me to learn Elixir. Unlearning Elixir was my first talk at Elixir. It's really kind of a weird thing if you've been in procedural languages for so long to try and pick up the way Elixir thinks about things. And strangely, one of the connections was Bruce Tate. Bruce was the one who suggested I should give a talk. And it was because myself and Patrick had signed up to do a programming class with Bruce. Only two people showed up and he's like, "Ah, I think I should cancel it. And we're like, no, 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 we're willing to travel and go do this. And we basically sat around for three days or two and a half days doing nothing but programming with Bruce Tate. I always say like, I didn't really know Erlang or Elixir before I got a chance to spend two days programming with Bruce. Wow, that's another thing we have in common because that was my real big like intro. I mean, I was programming Elixir for about two months before I took a training mm-hmm. with Bruce, but I similarly sat down in a room with him for a day and like walked out of it like I understand. Yeah, <laughs> that was kind of the the idea that really bridged my conceptual gap because what I didn't realize before taking that class with Bruce, shameless plug for Bruce and Groxio, some of the best Elixir training out there. I realized I was what I was doing is I was actually writing Ruby apps in Elixir, which I think is what a lot of people who have a Ruby background. I mean, I don't know. Have you guys noticed that when you have a Ruby background that it's difficult to stop writing Ruby and start writing Elixir? I will admit. So when I first started writing Elixir, when I joined Smart Logic, probably in 2016, 2017, 2017. I remember there being quite a learning curve and just pattern matching being sort of the concept that when it clicked, I became productive. And then I remember coming back to continue writing on Ruby apps that I had been developing. That to me was the bigger kind of like, Oh, interesting. Like Like, was it hard to go back? It was hard to go back initially. And then I later was kind of struck by how many of the features in Ruby I really like and how nice it looks. And so I, I had a secondary resurgence of appreciation for Ruby, which I don't think many people talk about very often. I only had a brief stint with Ruby, so I didn't come into Elixir knowing Ruby beforehand, truly. But I had a lot of, because I I came from JavaScript, and then learning Ruby was just such a 180 for me. But having learned Elixir, I feel like I could probably go back and understand Ruby better. I don't know why. I just have, maybe it's just having another language under my belt, but I just feel Mm. a little more confident that I could pick it up this time. So it's super interesting because I actually think there are certain languages. I have no scientific evidence to back this up, but my pithy summary is I'm a shitty Haskell programmer, but as a shitty Haskell programmer, it makes me a much better everything else programmer. And I think as there's opposed some... to not being a Haskell programmer at all. Yeah, exactly. Okay. Like, okay. so the, I mean, I hate to say it, but after all these years, the Haskell guys were right because Haskell forces you to think about computation in a very different way. I think it's the same way that if you ever pick up Racket or Scheme or Lisp or any new language, there are kind of two ways to go about it. There are certain languages which lend themselves to not learning a new way of thinking. So for instance, if you're a C++ person, you can pretty much go to Java or even more importantly, C Sharp, 
Java. In fact, if you've written C Sharp and Java, I think this has happened to everybody. At one point, you're about halfway through a class file until you realize when some system call comes up that you're not actually reading Java. Or like the way that you import something is your first indication that it's not a Java file, it's C Sharp. Because the languages look so similar, it's like, okay, what that, this... That or the method names are capitalized. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> like it, It's almost like the snake casing or camel casing is your first indication you're not in Kansas. But it really doesn't challenge you to think about how you build a program differently. And so one of the things which I find very inviting about Elixir is Elixir doesn't force you to build your programs differently. You can actually build some very poorly structured programs in Elixir that will work perfectly fine. It does not beat you over the head and say, you know what? I'm not going to run. I'm not going to work unless you actually do this and fix all these problems. Like Elixir is pretty forgiving when compared to Haskell. Haskell is like, you will. This is an excellent segue because at the very, before we started re recording, you mentioned something that you've got to grind, an ax to grind with the myth of the polyglot programmer. And now I feel like at this point in the conversation, you firmly established yourself as a polyglot programmer, thus proving that it's not a myth, but go on. Wait, no. Okay. So here's the thing. I think all programmers are polyglots because, so let's think of all the things that you have to do before you can even get to writing a line of code. Bash or ZSH or Fish, right? Are you on Linux, Unix, or Windows? Do you have a package manager? Are you using ASDF, Chocolatey? What are you doing? Did you get the right version of SSL to match the libs that are currently being compiled? Are you sure? Did you export which lib open SSL? Is that actually in your environment? Okay, good. Now we've got that. Emacs, Vim, RubyMine. No, Vim. Visual Studio Code? It's Vim. Oh. <laughs> I mean, of course it is. I understand that you haven't quite evolved to Emacs, but there are lots of you. Oh, I'm, I'm someone to told understand. us you were a Vim guy. Who was so, it? Was it you, Sunday, that mentioned that you thought he was a Vim guy? I said that in our in our class, we had a Vim user and an Emacs user. And so it made it, <laughs> for my wanting to use emojis during our code, made it a little difficult. <laughs> it, it did. I'm just saying, Emacs didn't have some emoji support in there for a little bit. Eric S. Raymond, represent. Anyway, no. So what I'm saying by that is we are all polyglot programmers. Perfect example. If you build a web app, okay, I will tell you right now, I think I've been using Babel for six years and I still have no idea what the hell my Babel configs are really doing. Right? Like, I 100% agree with that. Right? Like, exactly. Like in reality, what I do is something breaks. I Google answers. I read two competing answers on either Stack Overflow or Medium where one says, no, 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 you need ES6 short line inlining functions. No, 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 you need optional ES6 non-inlining but short line functions. What? Mm. Okay. Try them both. See which one actually complains less and go about your daily. Like that's just the way it is. It's like, there is no such thing as a homogeneous system anymore. It's not like you can just write some C and compile it. There's so many different tools that you're already building a tool stack. So I think the idea of polyglot programming is really just what programmers do intuitively. And then we're trying to, what you're really trying to say is how far down the stack can you really understand how many of these things are you proficient with? And it's really hard for me to think of being proficient in more than about two languages at any given point in time. I haven't written in Ruby in so long that if I were to go back to a Ruby project right now, I seriously doubt I would recognize a Rails 5 project. Like I'd still be thinking in Phoenix. Like I'd be like, oh crap, right? No Ecto. Okay. How do we do a, a partial? How do I do an order by? Like what, how does that work? Mm -hmm. Right. And so human brains being finite, I think developers have this idea that they should know Go and Java and JavaScript and CSS and pick your flavor of CSS, SCSS or Tailwind or whatever, right? And that they should know all of that and be proficient with all of it. And I think the polygot programmer myth drives people to think that that's actually possible and it's something to strive for. Versus I think it's much more useful and much more utilitarian to be like, yeah, I know enough about CSS and the underlying meta problem of what CSS does, and it will only take me a couple of weeks to pick up Tailwind. Right, or it only take me a couple of weeks to pick up the new version of Bootstrap, or it only take me a couple of weeks to get back to being proficient in something. Mm. Do you use Tailwind? I know I haven't yet. I've just started using Tailwind mostly because I'm one of those late followers. Until somebody can write a blog post to tell me everything exactly how to solve all my problems, I don't want to do it. I'm lazy. Right. I've been using Bootstrap for like I found zero reason not to use Bootstrap for ever because any problem I have with Bootstrap, 
I can Google it and I can find six answers that are probably right. Totally right. Very practical. I've heard so many good things about Tailwind. Yeah. I suspect one of these days, someone at Smart Logic is going to start making us use Tailwind. That's going to happen. It seems to be we already were using it, but I guess that was just made up in my head. (laughs) I've definitely heard it mentioned a few times. We've got a really ahead of the curve designer over here who probably Mm -hmm. is using it. So Randall, I've got some more questions about like your early days using Elixir, but I want you to kind of tell us a little bit about Thunderbolt too, because I'm curious about, I mean, the theme of this season is adopting Elixir. So I I kind of want to know how your personal adoption curve and you've been the founder of Thunderbolt for a lot longer than you've been using Elixir, right? Can you tell us a little bit about Thunderbolt and sort of the intersection there? Sure. Thunderbolt was originally started off after I left a Ruby company called Engineard. And so specifically we were focus on doing Ruby on Rails solutions, but we've always been pragmatic engineers. Like essentially what we were was contract product development for companies throughout Silicon Valley, right? So we would ghostwrite products for people. So if either their product team was failing or their product team was not up to snuff, we would come in and sort of help shadow pair, do hiring, training, mentoring, or in some cases firing. So for us, it was always about being effective and being efficient. So we went through sort of, I think three phases, like one was our big Ruby phase. And then we did some mobile apps and iOS, and we actually did some Ruby motion. And then later we did a lot of JavaScript, like everything from Angular to all the versions of React. My favorite thing was of course, getting a new point release of React and re- rewriting everything from scratch because that's what you had to do, right? Or my personal favorite was also finding out that Angular versus Angular 2 was not the same thing. Like, <laughs> like, and... Strangely enough, the move to Elixir came out of frustration with the JavaScript ecosystem. And I will admit to being a downer on JavaScript, like when your language has JavaScript, the good parts, and that's like Douglas Crockford. I like to make fun of JavaScript in Node, not because, well, it is easy, but it also keeps us all humble, but there for the grace of God go we. Like if you remember early on in the Ruby community, we almost ended up with the same problems that NPM had, right? But Yehuda Katz and a bunch of other people put a lot of work into Bundler and trying to fix the package management problem. Like Ruby had terrible package management early on. This is something I almost mentioned when you were talking about Babel earlier, which is like, why is Ruby and the community around Ruby? You also said like, sometimes you'll go look something up and they'll have all these like competing ways of Mm -hmm. doing things, but that doesn't really happen in the Ruby world. Like Ruby world seems to like, converge at like one preferred way of doing things. And I know that people say, oh, it's a Rails thing and Rails conventions, blah, 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 blah. But it's actually like a really strong cultural thing. And I'm really curious, like, how do they do that? It doesn't exist in the Elixir world for sure. That's an interesting question. That's a great question. I don't know. What's interesting to me is I think the reason languages feel different, like C++ feels different than C which feels different than Ruby, which feels different than Java. But I think a lot of the reason languages feel different has to do with the communities around them. And I think the Ruby community actually had a big thing about competition, but consensus, right? Mm -hmm. If you remember the great, hey, back in, you know, Ot7, Ot5, we had the great Merb, we had the great Merb schism. Back in the day before Rails 3.0 came out, we actually might have to do with the Merb versus Rails. Do you remember this? I do remember that. And at the same time, like it didn't actually happen, right? Oh, I mean, yeah, but like- Like How many Merb apps are out there? 10? (laughs) This is like when people say they use Elm. It's like, no, you used Elm. (laughs) (laughs) You know, like- There's a certain truth to that. Well, see, the nice part is actually, that's a different thing. I use Elm as a gateway to Haskell because- It's kind of like Elm is the thing where they wake up from a dream and it's like, and it was Haskell the entire time. Oh, right. But so no, I think the Ruby community had a great job of letting a whole bunch of possible solutions like go out. So remember if one time in time we had Pumas, Thin, God, Passenger, Straight Engine X with Biprox. These were all ways of running your Ruby app, remember? And then finally we said, okay, some of these need to go away. Which one's the best? And so we pick one or two. If you also remember, there were for a long time before we just had raw rack apps, there were, was Sinatra. There were a bunch of micro frameworks out there. Full disclosure, uh, Sinatra was written by a friend of mine, Blake, 
Blake Mazzarini, he wrote it. So I'm not going to be unbiased. But the one thing I like about the Ruby community is that they have no shortage of solutions that people can put forth and they will always evaluate them in the context of how well does it solve the problem. And mm-hmm. if it seems to solve the problem well, that's what spurs the adoption. I think that's one of the things right. that's really high quality there versus in some languages, especially ones that have much more of a corporate backing, oftentimes the most sane solution or the best solution doesn't win. So I agree 100% that Ruby has this, it's almost like an idiomatic black hole type of scenario where the best solution has gravitational pull. Mm-hmm. And then you're absolutely right with Java and like corporate backing leading to bad patterns. But then there's like JavaScript. Yeah, right? where you just get all the solutions and there doesn't seem to be a preferred way of doing things. And nobody's willing to take a stand and be like, you know, it's better. Like, what are the options now? Yarn versus NPM versus like yeah. power or something. Good Nobody God. was willing to say it until it's like so clear. Like no one was willing. Even now, I think people are, are not really willing to say, oh, React is better than Ember or Angular 2 or whatever are the options. Although everybody knows React is the better option. I'm sorry, React what? React 16 with hooks or React oh 15? Or are you using React <laughs> with Cycle.js? Oh, Excuse so me, we have to take a break. I need so to go this breathe. This is actually, I totally got into this fight with a, a JavaScript person. And every language has its good parts and bad parts, right? There's no ecosystem that doesn't. And probably Sunday is the only person who's qualified to talk, really talk about JavaScript because I'm sure she's written more of it than all of us put together. But like, the thing that I said is he's like, oh, I love writing JavaScript. I'm like, you don't write JavaScript. He's like, well, what do you mean? And I'm like, nobody has written JavaScript in 10 years, right? Because you have a babel.rc. You actually have, an, are you using ES6? Really? Great. Are you using ES6 with Node? Are you using, which version of Node? 8, 10, 12, 12 LTS, whatever, like all these versions of Node that are out there that actually have slightly different conventions and slightly different optimizations. Like, None of us actually write JavaScript anymore. We actually did yesterday. You wrote raw JavaScript? We were uh, in accessibility training and we were trying to write some raw HTML and JavaScript to get some like accessible tabs going on. How is that? We couldn't quite get there. Not in the time allotted. (laughs) (laughs) so this was like this is like a programmer versions of hell right yeah it's clear regular java yeah before (laughs) before you is a bomb it will go off in 24 hours all you need to defuse it is to write plain javascript to otherwise disconnect the red wire and leave the green wire intact we should use promises we can't we should use an arrow function we don't know underscore has something that'll do this we can't use underscore (laughs) right like like, it's a nightmare. Oh my God, this won't work. Why? This isn't Chrome. We have no idea what's going to happen now. Like, Are we allowed jQuery in this world? <laughs> exactly. See, <laughs> right? Are we? can we use jQuery? That's the thing about the JavaScript ecosystem, which sort of drives me nuts, is that JavaScript has ubiquity on its side. Quantity has a quality all its own. But man, there are just... There are just some things that remind me of JavaScript when I see it sometimes. It reminds me of VBScript, like in the early days of the web. Like, does anybody remember Internet Explorer used to run VB script and there were these websites that were VB script only? Oh, good God. Never mind. I'm old. Never mind. Never mind. <laughs> you brought up some interesting points, though, about, about JavaScript. And it's just like, we all kind of know it's like the necessary evil, right? And then for the programmers who feel very particular, especially me, who like when I saw Elixir, I thought it was like the, the greatest gift in comparison to having to write JavaScript. So I'm curious as to like, when you've confronted maybe you've had to teach a developer and they didn't, maybe did they, were they always excited to learn Elixir? Have you ever come across clients who were like, we don't know this language. Why are you going to build us an application in Elixir? I'm curious about Uh, that. Yeah. Oh, you mean, seeing as I guess we should probably get to the theme, right? So one of the things I've been doing for the past year is I've been the CTO as a technology incubator. It's kind of stealthy. Basically we're too lazy to put up anything about it. And we isn't that what stealth is yes exactly right nobody knows but one the of the things visible if you haven't built it yet <laughs> but, but the budget's intact all 62 billion dollars for our stealth plane <laughs> no so we actually ended up using a lot of stuff in electric doing covid response and part of it i find of the attraction of elixir is that elixir for good or strong developers and i know that's going to be a very loaded word but what's a good developer or strong developer I don't know, but for certain developers, you give them a tool like Elixir and they are just wildly more productive. It doesn't work for everybody. I don't think everybody grocks it. There are definitely teams of developers that if I were to look at the team and evaluate the team, I'd be like, yeah, 
C sharp is great for you guys. C sharp it is. Let's go guys. Or, you know, Java. Yeah, we should definitely stay in Groovy. Grails is a great choice, right? But for the devs who where it clicks, you can get so much done with a small team. Like we were able to rewrite in short using Broadway, we were able to prototype a data import process. It was having a lot of problems. They were able to get it down to running once every couple hours. We were able to get literally hundreds of thousands or millions of records processed in about 90 seconds by just rewriting it using Broadway and Elixir and then doing some baseline optimizations and looking at the way that Elixir allows us to scale out in parallel for things. For anyone that's new to the ecosystem, could you tell us what Broadway is? Yeah, Broadway is a, you can think of it as a way to create easily data flow pipelines that are inherently parallel. So it's basically, it's MapReduce, but it's like one of the ways you can do MapReduce inside of Elixir, an Elixir application. And I wanted to take us back a little bit. That's a good answer. I wanted to take us a little bit back to when you're telling us about when you found Elixir. Can you talk about like your very first Elixir project as an individual, if it was at Thunderbolt, if it was paid, tell us about the paid one. So the first couple of projects, we actually did not do paid. What we did is we had the paying work. And what we would do then is we would rewrite portions of it in Elixir on the side to see what it would look like. Brilliant. Because like pragmatically, it wasn't worth the risk. I was like, oh, maybe there's something there. And what we found was that the Elixir versions from a maintainability perspective and from a readability perspective and a compact code perspective, I was blown away with how expressive Elixir is right? You can do so much and so little. Like perfect example is like, I can't imagine language without pattern matching now. I went back to trying to write Ruby without pattern matching. You're like, yeah, God. So I, what do I have to do here? Hands tied behind your back. Yeah. Like in a perfect example, multi-head functions. What do you mean? I can't just pass you the same functions and you'll match on the argument. You figure it out. Don't make me figure it out. And the other thing that actually, so, oh, that's another thing. The error messages. The error messages in Elixir, I love. I just love the fact that Elixir has so many error messages. So what we did is we rewrote a bunch of stuff that we were already working on, and we just found that we liked the Elixir versions better. Did you ever take that back to the yeah to the clients and be like, look, we, we took a look at this and this is going to work for us better? Almost never. And here's the reason why. Unless we put the client on Elixir from the get-go, we always found it was really difficult if we weren't going to be the ones to maintain it. Partially for two reasons. One, early on, like if you remember 2018-ish, there weren't a lot of great resources on getting up and started with Elixir. I still think that getting up and started with Elixir can be really challenging. It is. Like, I mean, if you want to tell somebody how to write a Rails app, there are so many to-do, or even better yet, the actual, the ubiquitous JavaScript to-do app. The one place that I will give the JavaScript community full props is that they have accessibility and getting new people onto JavaScript, writing JavaScript apps easy down pat, like between serverless, like pick your framework, doesn't matter. There is, you can write a to-do app in 15 minutes in any JavaScript framework out there, and it makes that user feel empowered. And therefore it gives them an early incentive to actually stick with learning it. Like Elixir can feel really, it's not hostile, isn't the right word, just challenging to get into, right? Yeah. I feel like I had the opposite reaction i feel like when you have so many frameworks that you can if you were like i want to write a to-do app in the next 15 minutes and you didn't know much Mm -hmm. except for vanilla javascript i've often run into the situation where i look at all the options and i try like three of them and one of them doesn't work the second one doesn't work the third one okay i'm like tired of troubleshoot and i just give up Hmm. but with elixir i was able to like spin up a project in one line of code or terminal code and I was just going and I never had a problem with that. So I actually liked the lack of things available to me to try hmm. because it, it helped me focus. No, that's austerity as a, as a feature. It's actually not a bad, it's yeah. not a bad perspective. I think it's also different though for professional software developers and professional teams versus there's a bridge between hobbyists. Like, let's face it. Most software that's written actually isn't written professionally, right? Like, right. That's exactly what I was going to say is that. Sunday's an experienced programmer who's knows a lot of practices, et cetera, that you could translate from one experience to another, but for someone who's new to programming or just out of school to not have a variety and this, well, this actually goes back to what we were talking about with Ruby, you know, with the idiomatic convergence with this idea that we're going to find the best solution to make that the norm and then explore it from many angles. That's different from JavaScript world where you've got a billion different to-do lists all made with different sort of patterns and none of, 
them are asserting that they're better for any real good reason. So here's the other thing, which people I think oftentimes don't acknowledge, seeing as I don't want this to turn to ragging on JavaScript. That's okay. It's, so it's kind of turning ragging into- Ragging on JavaScript is what we do here. <laughs> here's the thing, right? Who made React? Facebook, right? Right. Who made yeah. Angular? Google. Right. Those frameworks were designed for their use cases in mind. And mm-hmm. I think one of the things that people always mistake is that literally what makes sense for Facebook does not necessarily make sense for your three-person team trying to ship software today, mm-hmm. right? Or your professional yeah. consulting firm, even though that it like Facebook is behind this, so it's got to be good, right? Well, yeah, for Facebook, right? Their use cases could very well differ from yours in very key ways that make it not the best choice for you. So- we do rag on JavaScript, but in fact, I love it, especially love React, I'll be honest. So no more ragging on React. No, I'm just kidding. That's not what I'm talking about here. What I'm talking about is I want to ask you a little bit more about how, because you said that it, with those initial Elixir projects, you were just sort of testing mm-hmm. to see how it worked. What about your first clients? How did you sell them on Elixir? So the first clients working on Elixir were either things which were going to be left alone Right. The client was never going to actually ever have to touch it again. So that was actually one of the other things. It's really funny. You don't appreciate the ability for something to restart itself until you basically understand that oftentimes with OTP, you get self-healing systems for free, which reduces translates directly into fewer calls from an angry person at 3 a.m. saying, why is my website down? Right. Right. It was almost like just a random discovery of like, oh, shit, these things are cheaper to maintain. So let me get this straight. They're faster to write. Yeah. You can install something ungodly on like an EC2 micro, right? In fact, to this day, I'm not sure. We might have something that's deployed on an EC2 large, but it was over-spec'd for one of the other projects. But I don't think we've ever installed anything on more than a small in terms of memory consumption, maybe a medium. It's hard to say. Eric, have we? I remember our one app, I think we also launched on... We launched on two smalls only to get load balancing and anything on Heroku. We were like our first app ever that was like production. We were like, do we need a 2x? I don't know. Let's do it for the cores, I guess. And then it runs at like a tenth of the, of the RAM, yeah. I think. <laughs> right. That was another thing. We just we realized it was so cheap to run these things. And so we basically picked a niche where the requirements for picking are, it was a good example to learn or do some learning on the client's time, so to speak, was that the client didn't care. We told them we were doing this up front. It was normally not a long-term implementation and we weren't turning it over to another team, right? So it was the sort of thing, it's like, yeah, I don't care. Just write it for me so I can have it. And I don't really care if it ever goes down, I'll give you a call. But it, it's kind of like these we didn't do them very often, but we would occasionally do these smaller one-off apps where it was kind of like, hey, we'll build you this thing. It'll be up and running. Those were a lot of the earlier apps. They were just kind of small, tiny things. Is it a universal rule that the hands-off client gets the best results? That's a really good question. Actually, I think it's a universal rule that the client who trusts their consultants gets the best results. Mm. I need you to be involved, but much in the same way that I don't walk into uh, the back of a kitchen and be like, hey, shouldn't that stove be like 20 degrees cooler? I expect you to cook my steak and make my potato. I don't come into the kitchen and basically second guess. Wait, wait, wait. Why are you rubbing two grams of salt into that baked potato? Shouldn't it be three grams? I might so have done this. Clients, no, seriously, like some clients, one, they like think that when they hire you that they own you in the decision-making process versus trusting what you're trying to tell them. Right. And so I find that clients who get the best results are the ones who trust you when you say, Hey, I think this is going to be a good fit for something like Erlang or Elixir. I didn't really do that, but I do think about it every time I get a steak that's not perfect or I get a cheeseburger that's not perfect. I just think, dude, I could teach you. Let me teach you. But I also want to ask, so you've, you've had the experience of trying to persuade clients and generally the ones that are trusting are the ones that let you go with Elixir. What about Mm -hmm. other developers? Have you had to persuade other developers on Elixir and how did you do it? Oh, so that's, that's interesting. I actually have a a script. Like I actually, at this point I have an email, like that's just a template that has all the baseline resources. And I'll tell you this, we actually worked on a JavaScript developer. I make some bold claims about Elixir and Erlang in the ecosystem. And then I'm like, but you don't have to take my word for it. Go take a look at Dave Thomas's book. If you don't like it, I'll buy the book for you. Hmm. 
Like, I'll give you the 20 bucks you spent on the book. If you find nothing of use there, if you don't find something, I got it. I have yet to pay out on that. This is the perfect way to open this season. Right. What about training developers in Elixir? So we actually got a subscription to Groxio so they could try it in the browser. I actually, I use a three-prong approach for getting new developers into Elixir. I try and find out what their learning modality is. Some people are better with video. Some people are better with tutorials, like shorter tutorials. Some people will sit down and read a book. So I always make sure that they always have an option of three or a mix. So I use Graxio, Prague Studios videos. So Prague Studio has an entire Elixir series, which I love because in it, you build your own little micro version of Phoenix so that that way, when you get to Phoenix, Phoenix is like less mysterious. You realize it's Elixir all the way down. And then I use Dave Thomas's book, like... Because I just like most of the people have a Ruby background, so they're familiar with the way that the pickaxe was written. So they can quickly get through Dave Thomas's books on Elixir. For people who are like looking at a production thing, I actually don't send them Elixir books. I send them Erlang and Anger. Have you ever seen that book? I think it's, yeah, I'm pretty sure it's Erlang and Anger is the title. Off goes bad. Yeah, that's it. Erlang and Anger. Uh, I will add these to the show notes. So it's a great thing because. I'm pretty sure Fred was at Heroku when he wrote that book. I'm not, I think he was because the the router, if I remember correctly for Heroku is actually a big Erlang app. The thing that basically maps you up to your dyno there, like that thing is an an Erlang app, I believe, or it was at one point in time. I don't know if it still is. Maybe it's it's moved on, but I I like that book because, so I use that book for people to, to basically get them out of the sense of thinking that elixir is just elixir i always tell people you need to learn elixir and erlang because if you're only using elixir you're missing out i say i don't know pick a number 60 percent, 80 percent of the power like a perfect example is uh, i saw some guy who was new to elixir he was doing something with asn1 certs or whatever those crypto certs one of those weird version of a crypto cert is and like well did you look to see if erlang already had that x509 cert thing or whatever it was that you needed he's like what I'm like, and it turns out the Erlang crypto module already had the function you needed to code the cert or whatever. Like it was already written and he just didn't have the Erlang documentation installed. So he didn't know it was there. Yeah, that's something that we definitely learn in Bruce's class that I never really did before, which was like actually like dig into the modules and see why something is the way it is, which I love because I'm, I'm not about magic in programming. So it's really helpful. But I wanted to comment, ask a question about your three-prong approach. So when we were emailing about this, this interview, you mentioned that your, that your company actually considers Elixir as a strategic advantage. And I was wondering if you mm-hmm. could elaborate on that a little bit. So there are kind of three parts to it. One is you actually have to have the right people and the right developers. Companies, not all developers are going to get the best out of Erlang, like some companies use Haskell as a strategic advantage, right? They have lots of great Haskell devs or whatever. So if you have the right developers and you give them the right tools, right? And by the right tools, I mean, they understand both the problems, the domains, and they're free to explore and actually learn how to use those tools effectively. And then you have management that leaves them the hell alone, right? So one of the things I was able to do was let the team use Erlang when we actually had some good projects that may would showcase the power of Erlang and Elixir. I let the team do that. And I was able to give them enough air cover as being part of management to help them (laughs) report on the results, right? So I think you have to actually have some sort of executive buy-in, like really buying in. You have to have a good test case so that you can prove what those metrics are. And those metrics need to be picked beforehand. You can't like pick the, the metrics after the fact. And then you need to have the right people who are able to go off and do that. And that's worked pretty well because generally speaking, in terms of developer happiness for certain developers, Elixir and Erlang is a big win, right? They get productivity. They get some functional programming. Another thing is, uh, what is it? I can't remember what the numbers were, but it's something like 80% of all code is actually refactoring or maintenance or something like that. Like only 20% of code is new. I don't, I don't know if that's really the ratio, but it's something like some minute number of lines in every project is actually new, right? And one of the things I find for getting developers on board and proving that there's long-term value in this is showing how easy it is to go in and make changes to Elixir code and not break fucking everything. Anybody who's ever gone in and made a small change and not had everything just explode 
all of a sudden starts to see the power of things like like Elixir and like good error messages and pattern matching and the way that you can defensively program, but you don't have to defensively program. Like I just like the way that there's so many tools in Elixir that allow you to be expressive and solve the problem. Not, um, I think Stu Holloway always talks about ceremony. I don't know if you ever heard his his talks on ceremony with code. Like a lot of the stuff you do in code has nothing to do with solving the problem at hand, right? It's set up. The perfect example of this is I always give the example of in C++ before you can define a class that's working on your problem, you've got to define what type of the copy semantics are. What are the memory layout semantics? Is this a copyable class? Is it a not copyable class? Does it have deep copies or shallow copies? Is it a struct? Is it allocated on the stack or on the heap? All of those things. Is it thread safe? What type of thread safe is it? Right? All those things you have to figure out for your class before you can even just start solving the problem. When all you wanted to do was like, I don't know, reverse a string or snake case a string. I was going to make the point that I make probably every fourth episode or something about Paul Graham's book, Hackers and Painters, where he talks about how dynamic languages enable the hacker to basically act like a painter and sort of experiment and very quickly make things happen and and get immediate feedback. And yeah, Elixir is very much a hacker's best friend in that way. Sunday, you were going to uh, ask a very important question, I think. Yes, I am going to ask a question. So for our listeners who didn't quite get this backstory, Randall and I took a class on LiveView with Bruce Tate at Graxio. And during this class, at some point, I said something along the lines of, I'm bad at math. And Randall very, very strongly disagreed with me. And you said something along the lines of anyone can do math. So I'd love for you to elaborate on this thought idea. Oh, gosh. Okay. Good heavens. That probably does sound like something I I would say, especially in an off moment. Now I guess I have to own up to it. So I say this as a person who, one of my other great sort of passions and one of the things that I actually gave a a lot of talks about is machine learning and applied statistics. And I say this as a person who went back and taught themselves back from the ground up, applied statistics. Even though I took statistics in, in college, like statistics for engineers and calc and calc three, it was all taught so poorly that it makes a lot of people I run into thinking that they're bad at math. And what it is, is they've actually just had some person who has a PhD and a real analysis who's been dreaming this stuff for 20 years and understands everything about it. And they're trying to explain that to somebody who's new. And in fact, at was it Lone Star Elixir, Dave Thomas gave this great talk about expertise and the Dreyfus model of expertise. Justice, I think you were there, right, Justice? I was. I might have been hosting. Yeah, I think I think you were. I think you were. I got to introduce you. Remember? That's right. We made fast friends. I think he gives a great talk about this, and (laughs) his point is just that you have to have somebody who is not an expert explain things to you. I think most of us in our entire lives have had experts explain math to us. Really? Yeah. I wish we had put way more time into this interview for this conversation, so I could argue with you. Really? Oh, Sorry. Oh, finish, your, finish your point. Finish your you point. You know what? So we well we can schedule an off. We can have a coda where instead we pour some whiskey and we have the great math debate about this. I would love to because I feel like most of my math teachers were imbeciles. My math I teacher think- definitely wrote the book, so he oh, was yeah. the the prime example of the PhD who dreamed about it for twenty years. It was an eight a.m. class with the guy who wrote the book. I did everything wrong my freshman year. <laughs> but I would also say this: math is misdefined in school. Mm-hmm. Like people go through 12 or 15 years of math and they think that it's about numbers. Yeah. But math isn't about numbers. Math is about logic. So why does everybody think that it's about numbers? Why does everyone think math and arithmetic are the same thing? Well, I look at it this way for people who are, I think if you're a professional software developer, what's your job? Math. Well, I would say problem <laughs> solving, right? Right. You're paid to solve a problem. At the end of the day, your clients don't really care whether it's, would you use? Well, actually, it's, I'm so glad you asked. I went and I found out this great library in Golang that was written by a friend of mine that's like, eyes glaze over. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Does it move the money out of my account and into that guy's account? Well, yes. Great. That's all I care about. Which is one of the reasons, frankly, nobody cares whether it's a Node app, a Ruby app, a Erlang app, an Elixir app, a Haskell app, right? Those things are immaterial. We're actually paid to solve problems. And I think the problem is, is that math is always presented in this pristine ivory tower-like abstract Imagine a perfect car traveling at a perfect 60 miles an hour down a perfectly 45 degree slope. Like, you know, like, no, it's, it's not that at all. Most people don't realize like calculus is useful, Mm-mm. right? 
like i think we will have to do the uh the whiskey math conversation that's not math that could be good actually you know what hey (laughs) you know it'd be great i will tell you right this i would gladly sit on a conversation fill up like eight ounces of whiskey and we like find some mathematician that's interesting and talk to them about how they would apply it i would do that with you justice i would gladly sit around and do that well i think we've got a date so we like to give you a few minutes at the end of the episode to make any final plugs or asks for the audience where they can find you anything. You know, this is your time. So please. I would say if you're into programming, this is actually a, so I'm going to go plug to Turing.io, which is a, basically it's, it's a way for people to get in. It's more than a programming boot camp. It's actually education. And I'm going to reiterate something I told there. If you're looking at getting into programming, don't underestimate the impact the community has on your ability to be happy and successful in your job. I think that's something that people way underestimate, right? Like I have met so many unhappy enterprise level Java enterprise architects, or I'm a .NET enterprise architect or a pick whatever, right? And our community one of the things you asked, actually going back, I don't think we actually ever finished any of these things, but one of the things I really liked about the Alicia community is one, all the smart people from Ruby were there. And two, as a random nobody in this community with no rep whatsoever, I walked in and I got was such a huge welcome from people and everybody was willing to share. And so one of the things I actually love about Elixir specifically are the people, right? I mean, think about it. Sunny and I were in a class today, like for what, two days, three days together, like online had never actually met. And here we are yet again. And in fact, actually, which at the time, I think you were looking for an Elixir gig too, right? I was, and I was losing hope that I would ever find one. And I was resigning myself to JavaScript jobs. <laughs> yeah. Right. But and she found it. Yeah. But I found it. I th- <laughs> but then also started this one and immediately wrote JavaScript. So. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, trade-offs, yeah. right? Mm-hmm. So my plug would be don't underestimate your own happiness as a software developer. And Think about what community has to offer you because you certainly have a lot to offer that community. And I think that's something that people as techie nerds, we like to focus on. Excuse me. Clearly IEX is actually the best shell for working with. Yeah. Blah, blah, blah. Yeah. Okay. That's great. It's actually way better to like the people you work with and like the jobs and the problems you get to solve. And that has a huge impact on your long-term or your longevity and being a programmer. I mean, I've been doing this professionally for over 30 years and it was an accident. I was going to be a lawyer. I wanted to be an attorney. Like I thought I was going to be a lawyer when I grew up or a classical musician. I spent a lot of time playing classical music as a kid. What really kind of kept me in was that there were lots of interesting problems and lots of people willing to take somebody who knew nothing and share everything they knew to somebody who probably didn't appreciate half of it at the time. Well, let's hope that Elixir can be that community for some people that are listening. Yeah, let's hope so. That's it. For this episode of Elixir Wizards, everybody, thank you again to our guest, Randall Thomas, and to my co-host, Sunday Mint, and our producer, Eric Ostrich. Once again, I am Justice Epen. Elixir Wizards is a smart logic podcast. Here at Smart Logic, we're always looking to take on new projects, building web apps in Elixir, Rails, React. We like to do infrastructure projects in Kubernetes and mobile apps using React Native. If you got a project you think we could help you with, well, we'd love to hear from you. Don't forget to like and subscribe on your favorite podcast player. You can also find us on Instagram and Twitter and Facebook. So add us on all of those. You can find me personally at Justice Eepin and Eric at Eric Ostrich and Sunday at Sundaykin. And join us again next week on Elixir Wizards for more on Adopting Elixir. Elixir.